crane accident at a mega construction site. The load did come off and you can see it actually struck the building behind us. What we're learning about the worksite disaster and the major emergency response. BC backs off big changes to the Land Act. The dog whistle politics was abhorrent uh, and I hope it stops. How the ministry is blaming misinformation for stoking fear and delaying reconciliation. And Robert Picton reaches day parole eligibility. I'm not necessarily willing to take that at face value. Why legal experts say there's no chance the serial killer will ever leave prison. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks very much for joining us. We start with the latest breaking developments involving that fatal accident at the massive Oak Ridge Park construction site in Vancouver. Cassidy Moscone is live at the scene right now. And Cassidy, there is new video of the moment this accident happened. There is. Chris, Global News has obtained a new dash cam video um, and you can see debris falling from that crane. Now, it is from a distance, but it's distressing. And um, just in the last hour, we've also had it confirmed that the accident here is fatal. Uh, it's an extreme tragedy and the situation is still unfolding. Let's take a look at this new vision. Vancouver Fire and Rescue have its entire technical rescue team involved. Their focus now is making sure that the building is secure because when the crane lost its load, as we mentioned, you can see in that vision, debris fell and crashed into the building. Uh, we can see a number of smashed windows here from the ground and firefighters are working to secure any loose material now that could be a further hazard. Nearby residents and workers tell us they heard just a really loud bang and they didn't really know what was going on until the entire construction site here was a evacuated some 1,700 workers. The construction company overseeing the development, Ellis Don, confirmed to Global News it is assisting authorities. We do have multiple agencies on site that are here. Uh, we're working with the construction companies and contractors here. They've been really helpful, as well as BCHS, uh, Vancouver Police. We've got WorkSafe BC that are here, all involved right now. Again, we're looking after the, the primary role is for us to make sure everything's stabilized. That's a very busy intersection where that happened, Cassidy. It caused some closures in the area. What's the latest there? Yeah, well, a section of Canby Street is still taped off, as you might be able to see behind me, and it's still blocked off to traffic. That's between 41st and 45th, um, so definitely need to avoid this area. Chris? All right, thanks for the latest there. Cassidy Moscone reporting in Vancouver. Okay, now facing growing opposition from across the province, the B.C. government is shelving proposed amendments to the Land Act. The changes were designed to give First Nation groups more input on land use agreements. But as Richard Zussman reports, some critics warned it amounted to an attack on private property rights. After trying to forge a new path forward on amending the Land Act, the B.C. government is now reversing course and will no longer bring in changes this spring. This touched a nerve in a moment in time that we now recognize and the responsible thing for government to do is to listen. And what we heard from people is a dedication and commitment to reconciliation. The province is in the middle of consultation around changes that were supposed to align the act with the UN Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous People, giving First Nations more say in land use decisions. It was also widely criticized by the public over concerns about broader implications. When talking about this issue, the Land Act, and the potential to work together, come to agreements with First Nations between ourselves, it was important 
to do it better. So we did reset the consultations. We broadened them, we deepened them. The government claims the opposition has gone to extremes to mislead the public, suggesting the Land Act changes would strip people's rights on their own property. But BC United says it held town halls across the province and heard significant worries and doesn't believe the government wants to listen. They've very much shown their cards of what they want to do, which means they're simply trying to remove, in my opinion, uh, this from an issue for the election and hope that people forget. Critics of changes to the Land Act say that this was in essence a veto for First Nations, where one First Nation could step in and derail a resource project. But First Nations leadership say this is far from reality. People often go to the word veto, like does this mean they have a veto? Does this mean Indigenous peoples can say no? Which is usually mentioned within the context of some alarm of upholding development, uh, a pipeline or you know, other type of resource extraction. And while these amendments are now sidelined, more changes are coming. Through UNDRIP, all legislation must be done with consultation with Indigenous people. Hopefully this will give a, a pause for people to have uh, fulsome and detailed discussions to you know make sure that they really understand the implications of where this is all going. As for resource projects set to soon come to the table, Cullen says he hopes this will still ensure certainty for people wanting to invest here in BC. Richard Zuspin, Global News, Victoria. Let's bring in Keith Baldry now for more on this. Keith, how much is the election playing into this decision? Oh, I don't think you can come to any other conclusion than that this was an election-related decision to hit the pause button on something that was becoming increasingly controversial. It's covered kind of rolled out sort of haphazardly, haphazardly, and really, the government never really got control of this. So again, this had the potential to really blow up in the government's face, particularly in the interior in the north, where they think for the first time they could win some seats come the October election. So yes, definitely election re timing related. Okay, and related to that, it is Budget Eve. The government has already laid out its priorities, mm -hmm. and we're about to find out how it plans to pay for them. What do you know? Yeah, so again, everything the government's doing right now, I think you have to frame against the election, whether it's hitting the pause uh, button when it comes to the Land Act or into tomorrow's budget. So one of the, the big numbers we want to take a look at tomorrow are actually in the current budget. And there are projections when it comes to deficits, debt, and debt servicing costs. Take a look at what the current numbers are projected and whether they're going to be exceeded tomorrow because it's shaping up to be a pretty spend-friendly uh, bu budget. So the current projection for the deficit, $3.7 billion. I suspect it's going to be higher. The current projection for the debt, $122.6 billion. We'll see if that number changes. And this bottom number is a number that keeps getting significantly larger every year as we're building more and more things in terms of infrastructure. $3.26 billion is the debt servicing cost as it was set this year. That number will change as well. Uh, Finance Minister Katrina Conroy today having a, a traditional a, a Budget Eve uh, photo op talking about what choices are going to be made here. And clearly her choices are not to cut services and to increase services and protection for people. Here's the finance minister. You know, in this time of global inflation, high costs and slower economic growth, some say that we should pull back, that we should cut services that people rely on in this province, like rolling back affordable childcare, canceling upgrades to schools, abandoning attempts to build homes that people can afford, or raising fees and taxes on, for people that are already struggling in this province. Uh, that's just the wrong approach. Uh, and we are not going to do that. 
So again, look for an expansion of services and things for people rather than any reductions. This is not a restraint budget. It is very much an election budget, which means there's going to be some goodies in there. In any event, it's going to start an hour earlier than usual. So it's going to be just after 1 p.m. The finance minister will stand on her feet and the legislature will be carrying a live special, of course, on BC1. I'll be on there with Richard Zussman to bring you all the details and analysis. No doubt. We'll be watching. Thanks very much, Keith. Ever-increasing prices on supermarket shelves are changing how Canadian families shop for groceries. As Alyssa Thibault shows us, a new national survey has found people are shopping around for deals and they're more willing than ever to buy expiring food to save a few dollars. Gas prices, mortgages and rents, grocery bills. Just living each week is expensive. It's gone from 160 to 300 for us, so... Yeah, just trying to feed four kids. And staying on top of the food budget is changing the way people shop. A new study finding three out of five Canadians have changed grocery stores to find better deals. And consumers are, on average, shopping seven times each month, up from five trips a month in 2018. So it means that people are either going back to the same grocery store to increase their chances of getting some good deals or they're visiting new grocery stores as well. I price things, I keep in my head like where what we like is cheaper here than at Save-On or Save-On is cheaper than Safeway. Or and, Walmart. Or Walmart, prices, yeah. so yeah, we do that. You have yeah. to. More than half of consumers would also buy food that's expiring, saying a 50% discount is enough incentive. Only a few things which are, you know, I'm sure that I can keep it for one or two days. If it looks good, like especially salad, there is some good news. While food inflation is continuing to go up, it is slowing. Stats Canada says grocery prices went up 3.4% in January compared to 4.7% in December. It is good news to see that this is one of the first times in the last number of years that it has been this low. And closer in line with the regular rate of inflation, which fell to 2.9% last month, meaning dramatic price increases at the grocery store could be calming down. That's good news, right? So that means that, okay, so whatever is in that system, whether it's supply chain, whether it be labor, whether it was transport, geopolitics, you know, in terms of affecting it, maybe the effects are coming down. Possible changes that can't come fast enough. There are certain aisles I don't go down, but uh, you have to eat. Alyssa Thibault, Global News. We're learning more about a shooting during an attempted robbery at a jewelry store in Surrey's Guildford neighborhood today. As Grace Key reports, employees of the business say a man was shot while trying to protect his wife who was working inside at the time. This boarded up window is what remains after would-be robbers stormed into Nord Jewelry Store in Surrey's Guildford neighborhood. The armed suspects ultimately fleeing empty-handed. They came in with, with a gun, like, ready for shooting in their hands. And uh, so my partner's husband, who happened to be here, um, to pick up her, his wife, obviously, end of the day, so when he saw them coming in, they attacked them right away without even allowing them to say anything. It happened on 152nd Street and 101 Avenue on Sunday around 6.30 p.m. The co-owner's husband was shot twice inside the store, according to the store manager. And then they uh, get into fight and they shot him. And then they when saw his reaction, they rushed out. And he chased them out. They shot him again. How many times was he shot? He had four bullets in his legs.
Police say the suspects were masked and they escaped in a white pickup with a canopy. That suspect vehicle is in our custody. However, the search for suspect is still continuing. Okay. And the suspect vehicle was it stolen? Uh, it appears that it may have been stolen from another jurisdiction. The suspects were able to get in as a woman exited the double secured doors. The manager suspects the woman was in on it, posing as a customer. To flee the store, the suspects had to smash through the window with the injured husband still after them. He said that his, his major objective was to protect his wife and our employee. That's what he was worried about. The victim is recovering in hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. Anyone who is in the area around the time of the shooting and who witnessed it or may have dash cam video is asked to contact RCMP. Grace Key, Global News. Good Samaritans step in to stop a callous crime. A blind person who uses a cane accosted on the corner by a thief. How they stepped in to help catch the suspect coming up next on the News Hour. BC tops a list we really don't want to be on. Why you better not be in a rush when you walk into a clinic here a little later. Plus, massive hits and record sales. After a banner year in video games, why the industry is still in turmoil coming up on the news hour. Right now, though, the families of the victims of Robert Pickton are holding a candlelight vigil tonight. Angry, the serial killer is el eligible to apply for day parole starting tomorrow. Angela Jung joins us live, and Angela, there's virtually no chance he'd ever be granted any kind of parole, but they say the justice system is making them relive a nightmare. Yes, Chris, they say it's traumatizing, triggering even, just counting down the days. It's unclear if Pictum will apply for day parole, but just knowing that he can is upsetting to families. That's why they're holding a candlelight vigil right now. Let me step out of the way so you can take a look. There are dozens of families and friends out here right now. They've been putting up posters, flowers, and red dresses in memory of their loved ones. I, I think of my daughter every single day. I don't want to think about Picton every day. But Michelle Pinot is forced to think about the man who killed her daughter, Stephanie Lane. Her DNA found in the pig farm of serial killer Robert Picton. On Thursday, he will be eligible to apply for day parole. My heart is aching. My daughter does not get day parole. She's been gone for 27 years now. She doesn't get privileges that he gets, and he should stay where he is until the day he dies. In 2007, he was convicted of six murders, though he was originally charged with the deaths of 26 women. And there are many more cases in which he wasn't charged. The time has flown by so quickly. I, I can't believe he could apply for day parole. This blows my mind. As the days tick closer, families say they are sick to their stomachs, thinking he would be able to apply for day parole. Anybody who did what he did, what he did does not deserve to, to walk the streets again. He's an evil, evil, evil man. A former Crown prosecutor says Picton would likely stay behind bars. I understand the outrage because parole is one of the most misunderstood and even maligned aspects of the Canadian criminal justice system. And especially with the case of Mr. Picton, it makes very little sense that we would re-traumatize the families of the victims 
for an individual who has almost zero chance of actually obtaining parole. Families coming together, paying tribute to those who never made it home. This vigil is something that needs to be done to honor our loved ones um, because of the injustice for them as well. It's been a heavy night. People are overwhelmed with emotions and the vigil organizer says she recognizes how it may be difficult for some families being outside this former pig farm where their loved ones never made it home. She says there will be cultural and emotional supports for those who need it. Chris. Angela Jung in Port Coquitlam. Thank you, Angela. And there is more to the Picton story, but first a warning. It could be disturbing to some viewers. More than 16 years after Picton was convicted of killing those six women, a legal battle is being fought over the destruction of evidence seized from that pig farm during the investigation. Romina Dea reports. More than 200,000 exhibits seized from Robert Picton's farm, the largest serial killer investigation in Canadian history. Among the exhibits, three freezers full of 400-plus meat products and other material, including multiple unknown samples. The items ordered destroyed because RCMP freezers failed. Victims' families in the dark. And when you have something as significant as the spoilage of potential human remains, families need to be informed. And beyond that, the public needs to be informed. Global News has uncovered an RCMP application filed in February 2021, a judge ordering the exhibits destroyed. The samples do not contain any human remains, say the Mounties. I'm not necessarily willing to take that at face value because when we look at the investigation into the Picton case, we saw there were multiple freezers throughout that property. And within several of those freezers, we do know that there were human remains. Now, are you telling me that there's no human remains in those applications? RCMP refusing to do an on-camera interview. But in an email, Staff Sergeant Chris Clark told us there were no attempts to hide this from the public. Biology reports back up the accuracy of testing. The exhibits held no evidentiary value. This is an incredibly sensitive issue for the families. and We want to make sure that everything is done properly and that uh, their concerns need to be taken into account on any decision that's made on this. With backing from 40 organizations, lawyers for the victims' families and Justice for Girls are currently in court trying to stop the RCMP from disposing of thousands of other exhibits in the Picton matter, given so many cases remain unsolved. This is a case of national significance. This is a case where blunders and missteps has, have happened at almost every single step. We deserve to be informed. Romina Dea, Global News. Vancouver police say three good Samaritans helped them arrest a suspect in a crime so heartless it's going to be difficult to believe. Police say the victim, who's a 40-year-old newcomer to Canada and is legally blind, was walking through the West End when someone stole his white cane right out of his hands. The man is homeless and he's been sleeping in shelters but walks the streets during the day when the shelters are closed. Luckily, a man and two women were passing by in a car when they saw the robbery happen. They stopped. They got out of their car, they confronted the man, and they followed him. Um, our officers were able to get into the area quite quickly, and with the help of these good Samaritans who were watching the suspect, we were able to uh, locate the suspect nearby. He was at a bus stop at uh, Burrard and Davie Street. Still had the cane in his possession, and we were able to arrest him quickly without incident. 
return the cane to uh, the victim who was stranded because he's visually impaired and he, he was unable to navigate the city without his cane. So with the help of these good Samaritans, good people doing good things, we were able to uh, arrest the suspect, return the cane to the victim, and take the suspect to jail. 37-year-old Jeremy Justin Heron, who has a long criminal record dating back to 2008, has been charged with one count of robbery. Well, if you need to see a doctor at a walk-in clinic in B.C., be prepared to wait, especially if you live on the North Shore. As Troy Charles reports, the health minister says it's due in part to the fact that more doctors are being encouraged to move into family practice. Among participating provinces, Medimap data shows B.C. residents face the longest walk-in clinic wait times in the country with a 93-minute average. North Vancouver specifically has the longest wait, averaging over three hours. Now the report has Vancouver's average wait time at 62 minutes. Looking at the Granville Medical Clinic behind me here, it says an hour 10, and we're hearing that's actually on the low side. You either try and fix it yourself or you're prepared to wait for two hours. Yeah, two hours, <laughs> we're just used to the norm. <laughs> we're like, oh, we already know it's gonna be long, so we just anticipate I'm gonna block out my day to sit in a walk-in clinic. <laughs> You're like, yeah, that's my day. Medimap CEO feels BC's struggles are linked to its new physician payment model, which he says led to some doctors moving away from walk-in clinics in favor of family practice. What is suffering as a result is the quantity of care that can be delivered. The province stands by its push to bring on more family physicians. All of the other jurisdictions are looking to British Columbia and following our model of addressing primary care because we're focused on making sure that people have a family doctor or nurse practitioner. We're hopeful that as more and more family doctors begin to come into, the, into British Columbia and begin practicing longitudinal family practice, we'll see a decrease in the number of people who need access for, for routine care through walk-in clinics. Dr. Kremadin admits that more needs to be done now for the hundreds of thousands in BC without a family doctor who need access to urgent care. Some of that will look at increasing capacity, what we call primary care networks through coordinating services in the community and seeing if we can enhance linkages to the virtual care services, both locally and provincially, to see if we can improve access that way for urgent care. Many are hopeful those improvements don't take as long as their current wait times. Well, I feel like I've gotten used to it. I don't know if I've accepted it. Troy Charles, Global News. Coming up, safety goes off the rails. Every year across the country, there are hundreds of derailments, uh, cases of runaway trains. After a spike in train collisions and derailments in B.C., some say it's time for major changes. Plus, a $59 million payout to right an historic wrong against the Matsqui First Nation that split the land and hurt its people. Following two serious train collisions in B.C. over the past few days, the union representing most Canadian railway workers is calling on the federal government and the railway companies to ramp up their focus on safety. Aaron MacArthur reports. A smoldering wreck of a locomotive, an indication of the severity of this collision near Revelstoke over the weekend. According to the Transportation Safety Board, a westbound train carrying grain products slammed into the back of a stationary train. The next night, a similar collision near Field. Several freight cars derailed off a siding 
and onto a stationary train on the main line. Last November, two trains collided in Delta. These three incidents in such a short time frame, raising serious concerns about the state of Canada's rail industry. Since Let Me Got Sick, we've lost over 21 railway employees, uh, most of whom are are Teamster members, over 110 serious injuries. The Transportation Safety Board deemed the Revelstoke collision a Category 3 incident, which indicates significant damage, but not significant enough to dispatch investigators. Critics say the rail companies are being allowed to police themselves far too often. The challenge, of course, is for Transport Canada and for the federal government to put a system in place that really holds them accountable. According to the TSB, train accidents are slightly down year over year and compared to the five-year average. But looking more closely points to a serious concern. 161 trains in 2023 exceeded their movement limits, essentially ignoring signals to stop nearly 30 more than the previous year and the five-year average. It's an issue that remains on the TSB's watch list, as serious and unresolved. According to the union, personnel are suffering from fatigue as companies push employees harder. Two big rail companies in Canada, CP and CN, they're putting profits over safety. And uh, they take risks uh, oftentimes that uh, we feel they, they, they simply should not be taking. The rail companies dispute the union's allegations and are currently in negotiations with the Teamsters for a new collective agreement. Safety will be a key part of those talks. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. A multi-million dollar land claim settlement has been reached with a Fraser Valley First Nation. The federal Indigenous Relations Minister was in Abbotsford to provide details about the $59 million compensation deal for the Matsqui First Nation. In 1908, the federal government granted right-of-way access to the Vancouver Power Company for a tramway across two First Nations reserves, essentially cutting off access for the Matsqui people. This settlement will not change the past, nor will it fix it, but it does give us hope for a brighter future, especially for our youth. This is not about compensation. This is about ensuring that what is rightfully yours um, is cannot be returned, but it's, it's, it's acknowledged. The Matsqui First Nation says what was once a 3,800-hectare reserve has now been reduced by 99% over the past 150 years. We'll go back to the scene of a deadly construction accident in Vancouver right after the break and also ahead. We're only about two or three blocks long by two blocks wide. The B.C. community with a staggering number of overdose deaths. It's time for the Variety Show of Hearts Telethon. Help transform the lives of BC kids on February 25th. Special appearances by Natalie Portman, Tom Cochran, Seth Rogen, and more. Visit variety.bc.ca. Returning to our top story now, breaking developments involving a crane accident at the Oak Ridge Park construction site in Vancouver. Cassidy Moscone is live with the details in Cassidy. Sadly, now we can't confirm there's been one fatality. 
That's right, Chris. Just in the last hour, we had that fatality confirmed. As to what happened and how it happened, we just don't know yet. That will be up to the coroner to investigate with the help of Vancouver Police and, of course, WorkSafe BC. Now, here at the scenes, there are some concerns of uh, loose debris that fell on the building uh, from when the crane lost its load just before three this afternoon. Global News obtained this dash cam video of that moment. We know some of it crashed into the building. We can definitely see a number of smashed window panes from the ground. 35 firefighters were here at the peak. There's still a number of emergency workers here on the scene right now. Their main focus is getting this area and the construction site safe following this terrible tragedy. Uh, we can confirm, unfortunately, that there has been one fatality uh, on scene with no other injuries. So, um, unfortunately, as a result of the, uh, the crane incident here, that uh, load falling from the crane, we can confirm that was one person who was uh, fatally impacted by that. So we just want to make sure we've got proper ID and uh, notifications have been made. So we're just waiting for the coroner to come by and make sure we have a positive ID. Canby Street still remains blocked off to traffic from 41st to 45th. Um, so definitely avoid the area at least for the next few hours if you can. Chris. All right. Good advice. Thank you very much. And uh, our thoughts go out to the family of that worker killed on the job. The entire province is dealing with a drug overdose public health emergency and it's hitting the city of Nanaimo extremely hard. The number of overdose deaths has more than doubled over the past two years, rising from 53 in 2021 to 112 in 2023. Last year they accounted for 4% of the province's total unregulated drug deaths, despite the city only making up 2% of the province's population. And as Kylie Stanton reports, the majority of those overdoses are taking place within a few blocks of Nanaimo's downtown core. A lot of it you see with tinfoil and they're cooking drugs. You see evidence of it right here. Around every corner, there's another story. This was broken by a, uh, an individual that was high on drugs. This area of downtown Nanaimo, only three blocks long, two blocks wide, receives the highest rate of overdose calls in the city. 338 over the course of nearly two and a half years. This is a public safety emergency for every single one of us. The numbers have been steadily climbing. And now, after months of research, the Nanaimo Area Public Safety Association has released this report, analyzing high-acuity overdose data in hopes of shedding light on the gravity of the crisis. It's a bloodbath out here. This is... Um an absolute catastrophe. During the study period, 71% of the more than 2,500 high acuity overdoses occurred within 15 hotspot areas, making up roughly 4% of the geographical land base of Nanaimo. We see these data as evidence that um, of what the neighborhoods already know. Excuse me, you can't be doing drugs in a playground. But they also want those concerns addressed. This is playground equipment for children. They're tired, they're fed up, uh, and it is extremely frustrating because the solutions lie at the provincial and to some extent the federal level. The report lays out nine recommendations, including better supports for the homeless population and putting an end to the decriminalization of illicit drugs unless better controls are implemented.
But steps are being taken. Just last month, the provincial government signed a memorandum of understanding that would bring in more supports and housing opportunities. But I think many people simply do not see it as enough. Well, we appreciate that there are challenges in, in Nanaimo and we're really committed to working with the community to, to make progress on them. We've also had another fire right here. But with every passing day, the crime continues, frustration grows, while the number of overdoses keep climbing. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Still ahead in sports. To play at home is, it's a blessing. The homecoming for a kid from Vancouver Island living out a dream playing professional soccer. Plus, we're going through this massive transition. Despite a banner year, why some say the video game industry is in major trouble. Temperatures have been pretty mild lately, and that picture behind Christy will tell you the full story there. But the cooler weather is coming, right? Yes, and so we were talking a little bit about that last week, Chris, the cooler air expected next week. But we do have a bit of a change, which happens with the long-range forecast. That's why we're ur urging everyone to tune back in. doesn't look like the air, the long, uh, sorry, the cooler air is going to last as long. Conditions right now, though, are certainly mild. We're still a month away officially from spring, but it feels like spring. That's what the plants think. Some nice showers today across the region. A quick reminder to everyone, weatherwindow at globaltv.com is our email address. We're really hoping that anytime you see something really cool weather-wise, send us a video. All we need is 20, 30 seconds, and we would love to share it with everyone at home. But yes, mild conditions right across the region. 8 degrees in Kelowna, and they're expecting 11 tomorrow. That's 8 degrees above season for this time of year. Now, we'll likely see a few showers across our region tomorrow, but we're trending towards brighter conditions. Not a total clearing, but brighter conditions by the afternoon, and we'll continue to see that uh, blue sky into the morning hours on Friday. This is the dip in the uh, temperature that we're expecting sort of Sunday night into Monday, but it doesn't look like it's going to last long with this next pool of cold air staying offshore. We're hoping that that shifts inland over the next few days and brings that cooler air mass, but in the meantime, it looks like it will be a brief dip, at least giving some snowfall to the mountains, though. In the meantime, tomorrow, sunshine across northern regions. We'll see breaks of blue sky with double-digit temperatures again in Kelowna, 11 degrees. We'll see double digits in our region as well. Showers in the morning, drier in the afternoon with some breaks of blue sky. Lots of sunshine expected still on Friday. Over the weekend, though, we're back to cloud cover and we'll likely see uh, rainfall before the temperatures drop Sunday night. All right, tonight's central windows weather window coming to you from Hatsik Lake. This was the sun rise. I believe this was this morning, although uh, Mike Ruddle um, didn't specify, but it does sound like it was from this morning. All right, Chris, back to you. That is a beautiful shot. Thanks, Mike, and thank you, Christy. Okay, Squire joins us now. Nobody's even close to pushing the panic button after three losses in a row, Squire. No, don't break the glass yet. <laughs> Keep your arms inside the moving vehicle. The bandwagon still has good speed. Uh, and of course, as you mentioned, the Canucks have now lost three in a row. They lost their third straight last night in Colorado. But it was still a special game for Arsteet Baines because it was his first in the NHL. I think just first stepping out there, it just feels like a dream. And then kind of when you get uh, into your first shift and throughout the game, just kind of, kind of just like another hockey game. And he did actually okay and probably got more ice time than he thought he would get from Rick Tockett. Glad he did all right. Also ahead... After a magical year in the video game industry, why some say the hits come at a huge price. Baines, 
Made some good gains in his career. I think he did mm -hmm. last night. Remember, this kid was never drafted in the NHL, never drafted in the Western Hockey League. He just has used his smarts, and he's learned the game, and he's now in the show. And Rick Tockett wanted to see what he had in Arshdeep Baines, and he did okay in his first ever NHL game last night. Of course, got to remember, he was taking on Colorado as well. That wasn't a chump team out there. Didn't get any special teams play, but he got more ice time than people like Mikheyev and DiGiuseppe and Connor Garland. He was a minus two, but you can't fault him on either goal. He also had two shots on goal himself. The best part of his first ever NHL game was the fact his father was there with all the other Canucks dads and mentors who are on this trip. And Baines had a good chance here on a two-on-one. Tried the pass. There's dad. Puck came back to him. And he got it on net. Couldn't score. Did have three hits in the game, though. That's the other thing I think the Canucks are going to like. He didn't shy away. And then after travel, he went after people. And uh, tomorrow we'll see if he'll get to play again when the Canucks are in Seattle. Now, you mentioned panic button earlier. Okay. <laughs> This month has been the worst so far for the Canucks this season. Uh, they're still 500. This has been a tougher schedule in February. That January number, 846, that's incredible. They only had one game where they didn't get a point. That was the loss in St. Louis, and they were on a seven-game road trip and still won almost 85% of their games. Uh, defenseman Jet Wu has been called up again by the Canucks. He was called up on February 12th and then sent back on February 17th. But he's up again, 18 points in 44 games with Abbotsford this season. He's been in the Canucks minor league system since 2021, and he is starting to show improvement. And the BC Lions have given number one quarterback Vernon Adams a contract extension. That's going to take him through the 2026 season. Led the CFL in passing yards last year, and he had to do the job last season after Nathan Rourke's departure. And that left a lot of people wondering, how would Rourke leading for the NFL affect the Lions' offensive production? Well, Vernon Adams was able to do the job, so signing him to a contract extension was a good move. So the union representing Canada's women's national soccer players are suing, or is suing, 15 current and former board members for Canada soccer to the tune of $40 million. This is all over an agreement that Canada soccer made in 2018 with a company called Canada Soccer Business, where Canada soccer took a yearly fee of apparently between three and four million in exchange for Canada soccer business to sell the rights to sponsorship and broadcasting fees for the women's and men's national teams. A lawsuit alleges Canada soccer board members at the time of the deal were negligent. Uh, there were three teams from Canada at the start of the CONCACAF Champions Cup tournament, but the Whitecaps and Force FC of the Canadian Premier League are out. All that's left now is Cavalry FC from Calgary. They're also in the Canadian Premier League, and tonight they'll play Orlando from Major League Soccer, but they'll do it at Langford's Starlight Stadium, and they'll do it with an island guy leading the way, defender Callum Montgomery. He proudly wears the kit of Calgary's Cavalry FC, but Callum Montgomery's heart belongs to Vancouver Island. Born and raised in Nanaimo, Montgomery set to play the biggest match of his professional career in front of family and friends. Cavalry playing the opening leg of their CONCACAF Champions Cup match against Major League Soccer's Orlando City. Individually, this match is an unbelievable chance for me to come home, back to Victoria, you know, back to the island where I grew up and play in front of friends, family, old teammates, old coaches. Um, and I love that every chance I get. And he does send Andrew Hicks the wrong way. And Callum Montgomery, the captain, has the highlight. 
Islanders up one nil. Montgomery's had his fair share of big moments on the island. He made 25 appearances and captain the Victoria Highlanders prior to splitting time in Major League Soccer and the USL. Last season, he was part of Cavalry FC's Canadian Premier League Shield winning side. For a true island boy who donned his first soccer kit as a four-year-old in Nanaimo, it really doesn't get any better than this. To play at home is it's a blessing you know I um growing up on the island I didn't realize myself that it was going to be a possibility to play professional soccer um so to be able to come home play in front of my family play in front of my friends play in front of you know old old teammates and stuff and as well as the next generation of hopefully professional soccer players as well on the island um means a lot as for the business at hand if Calvary FC is successful in their opening round series against Orlando FC they could find themselves another two wins away from a potential matchup with Lionel Messi and Inter-Miami. Yeah, I think this is an unbelievable opportunity for us to test ourselves against one of the best teams in North America. It's not every day we get to play an MLS team, um, so I think we all cherish the opportunity. We showed last year how good we can be, and if we come in with that same energy and attitude, um, anything can happen. That's the goal. We're, gonna come, we're coming for you, Messi. <laughs> Well, good luck to them. We'll see how they do. It's a two-game total goal series, so they'll also have to play one in Orlando, too. Hopefully they get a good crowd. Yeah, good crowd and a good start. There you go. Good stuff. Thank you, Squire. Still ahead, why some say the video game industry needs a major reboot. Jordan Armstrong joins us now with a look ahead to what's coming up on Global News at 11, including some breaking news in Surrey. Jordan. Chris, if you live in Surrey and are wondering what all the sirens are about, this is what happened. There's been another stabbing at Guilford Town Centre. It happened not long ago, just after 6 o'clock. Police say there are two victims. More information as we get it. Plus, a man who Alberta Crown Council classified as a serial rapist is moving to Vancouver. Matthew McKnight is a former club promoter convicted of sexually assaulting five young women over a span of six years. He incapacitated his victims with alcohol and sometimes a date-rape drug. McKnight will be living at a halfway house somewhere in Vancouver. The parole board never says exactly where. At 11, more about his past and what police are saying about his presence here. Chris? Unnerving for a lot of people, I'm sure. Thanks very much, Jordan. Well, it's been a wild ride for the video game industry lately. Major developers unveiled many critical and commercial successes last year. But they also fired thousands of employees. Global's Nathaniel Dove explores what's behind all the turmoil. It's your chance to step into a magical realm. And many people did. Hogwarts Legacy was one of 2023's biggest releases, selling more than 20 million copies worldwide. Other storied franchises released massive games and saw massive sales. But while it was one of the best years for the video game industry, it was also one of the worst. It comes with so many challenges where the employment, job security is very fragile at times, especially right now. Despite the successes, game studios also cut nearly 11,000 jobs, according to an industry expert. Microsoft, which owns the ultra-successful and new Diablo 4, fired almost 2,000 people. The maker of the popular Fortnite dropped about 800. Developer Kevin Brunt still has his job, but wonders if the industry is sustainable. It's been a really unhealthy industry that we're getting to where, you know, teams are getting burnt out and then just leaving the industry. The industry has always been cyclical. 
hiring to develop a game, and firing when it's done. We're going through this massive transition. Now, this expert says, studios are waiting for a new generation of consoles to launch new games, that the industry is right-sizing after a pandemic boon, and that studios like to cut costs by shedding jobs. But he says it comes at a cost. Well, I get it. You get shareholders. It's fine. Um, but it creates incredible risk and destruction of value. Turmoil reflecting the action in some of the games. Studios have more major releases scheduled in about a year and will likely hire again, but workers don't know if they can hold on. A lot of those people, or at least a, a percentage of it, will quit this industry for good. And they just, they're just fed up with it. Nathaniel Dove, Global News. All right, we don't look a fortnight into the future, but in the near term, a slight change is coming. Little video That's right. game. So we're <laughs> little video well done, game Chris. Phrase. <laughs> I wish I had something to follow up with. I don't have very good video game lingo. What I do know is that by late tomorrow, we'll likely start to see a bit of a clearing. Sunshine on Friday, and it's into Monday that we'll see the cooler air. All right, that's great. Thanks very much, Christy. Thank you, Squire. Okay. And thanks for watching, everyone. Have a great night.